Welcome, everybody. We're doing something just a little bit different this week. Instead of convening the pop culture panel like we so often do to talk about the color of Beyonce's hair, maybe what Justin Bieber's been up to this week, whatever it might be. Uh, I just have one guest, but what a guest. I'm really, really happy to see her in the studio. Uh, the Quill Inquirer review of her book, I Bificus, says that she's raw, honest, and frank about everything. My guest in studio is Biff Naked, singer, songwriter. You're now a public speaker. Oh my gosh. You're a rock star. Oh my gosh, so nice. You're you're an author. There's well, so much going on here. Yeah, I loved I loved writing. You loved writing sure. this book. I we'll do. Yeah, we'll, I we'll get there. We'll get there because I want to talk about how you wrote this book. It's fantastic. By hand. It is written by <laughs> hand. And it was about three times as long as the one that, that I hold in my hand here when you finished writing it. So I want to get to that okay. uh, in just a little while. Okay. But we're going to go way back. Okay. I'm going to go way, way back to I start. I love it. You were born in New Delhi. Yes. And you were, you were uh, found and adopted by American missionaries who brought you to the United States. Who were bleeding heart socialists as well. Really? Yes, they were. So yes. tell me a little bit about your, your young years. Oh, uh, you know what? I had a really good childhood, really happy. Um, my parents were, they were, you know, academics. My dad was a dentist and he taught dental therapists and he liked working for public health, which was what his master's was in. Uh, my mom was a nurse, but she was a homemaker. Uh, they adopted my older sister before me by about a year. And then when they moved back from India to Minnesota, they had my little sister. Mm -hmm. So she was busy with three kids. And uh, uh, the church uh, and them kind of parted ways, so they weren't working as missionaries any longer. And my dad had to figure out where he was going to find a job. Uh, so the Congo had a program where they were yeah. they had just graduated their first five Congolese dentists ever. And uh, my dad was going to help set up a program where they were going to train dental therapists. And in the end, you know, Mobutu and everything, <laughs> things were a little un uncertain at that time in the 70s. Uh, so it was unwise for this wacky American dentist to come in there. So instead of the Congo, he chose the Paw, Manitoba. And I always think, you know, I wonder... <laughs> What would have been different? Yeah. You know, it's like flipping a <laughs> flipping a quarter. It could have been very different. Hard to say. But the paw is where we landed, and he taught at the community college there um, until I don't know, like 1978. Yeah. And uh, I, I have no complaints except for in the third grade, uh, Mrs. Butterfield <laughs> pulled my pants down in front of the whole class and spanked me. And you know, and I, I laugh now. My parents laugh because my my. My father, may rest in peace, always said, you know, Beth, you probably deserved it. You probably earned it. <laughs> and uh, now, I mean, that was that's against the law, I'm oh, sure. Can you imagine? Yeah, you can't even spank a dog in a dog <laughs> park. You know, believe me, I do know that. Uh, but, yeah, so I just laugh. I think, you know, anyway, uh, we moved to Kentucky, Lexington, Kentucky, where he started uh, working at the U of K, home of the Wildcats. And that was very, very different than the PAW. I mean, that was just a completely different society. And uh, my sister and I, both being from India, but she was a brown kid, I was a white kid. And so in Kentucky, that was a very different experience for her and something that we had never really encountered uh, to that degree before. You know, there was a lot of racism in the school. We were bullied. 
Um, and how was, did that affect you? Well, you know, I can't speak for my sister. Yeah. I think it was incredibly detrimental uh, in the long run to her esteem in general, just like I would be for anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my coping technique it remains today what it was when I was 10, uh, which is being the class clown. Right. Um, and so I was always, you know, a nut, you know, just a nutty kid in school and, and getting into trouble because I'm, you know, doing some type of tomfoolery. Uh, but it was great, you know. I, I look at it now as a very serendipitous upbringing. I think I feel very fortunate uh, for how my sisters and I uh, kind of were raised. But we were latchkey kids, and that's something that doesn't exist today. My mom eventually worked at a vet. She she worked out of the home, and we had literally had keys to get in the door, and we let ourselves in. I don't know how the misadventure didn't, you know, we didn't succumb to like yeah, burning, burning down the house or, <laughs> or something. You know, the, the things we got up to were just, you know, reprehensible, really. Um, and then we moved back up to Canada for uh, when I went into junior high, which was Dauphin, Manitoba. Right. And so that kind of started to define who I am today is being raised in, in Manitoba, really. Well, you, there's a, a quote that I have uh, here from you. The fact that I was adopted predestined me to feel like I was lucky. I'll find the silver lining in anything. Oh, it's the truth. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there's a saying that is uh, you go from one mommy's tummy to another mommy's heart. Right. And really that I always knew I was adopted and so did my sister. Um, and for my 21st birthday, my parents bought me a ticket to go meet my birth mom. And what was that like? Amazing. Yeah. It was amazing. I mean, I don't look anything like anyone in my family. I don't act like anyone in my family. (laughs) And I met this individual who looked exactly like me. And, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about smoking. We smoked the same weird brand of cigarettes (laughs) when I was 21 years old. I smoked Benson and Hedges Deluxe Ultralight 100s menthols. <laughs> that is, of course that I is did. very specific. <laughs> of course I did. And so did she. And it was nuts. A you continent know? away. Two it continents away. It was wild. It was wild. So, um, and, you know, I still, uh, a- a- as time goes on, uh, my birth mom has two kids of her own. And I still kind of, you know, I don't talk about them like my half-sister and my half-brother. It's my sister and my brother. Right. And, um, but I still call her by her first name, uh, because my mom is my mom at home. Yeah. And so I, I don't know why that, that difference is there, but I, you know, I, I love her in a, in a way that I love my mom and it was just always there. I think that, uh, when I was an adolescent and having, well, I wasn't having a hard time. I was giving my parents a hard time and that's really (laughs) the reality of it. But I used to fantasize about what my birth mom was like. Um, and I just, you know, imagine she, she must be like Sophia Loren. She must be this, you know, you know, just wildly passionate. Glamorous. Oh, yeah. yeah. Because <laughs> my parents were extremely conservative. Yeah. You know, alcohol wasn't allowed in my house. And, you know, all the things that I liked doing, which were, you know, rambunctious. Uh, I just had to imagine that my, my birth family was into and, you know, now that I'm a little older and wiser, uh, I see that everybody's just cool and normal. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that you're, uh, uh, what is it, nurture, not nature? No, you're nature, not nurture. Is yes. that it, do you think? Oh, I think I'm both. Yeah. And, and having met her, uh, I, the coolest part for me, and knowing her now, because moving out to Toronto, I'm close to where they are. They're up in right. Collingwood area. Right. Wasaga Beach, really. 
Um, I can tell you very specifically what is genetic in my personality traits and what is environmental. And it's wild. I feel uh, really fortunate to get a real, you know, mashup of all these different adults that have influenced me either genetically or or environmentally. I, I got a rumor who my birth father is. I follow him on Twitter. I'm not going to lie to you. I follow <laughs> really? him on Twitter. Yes, I do. Uh, and it's very funny to me. And, and my little sister, uh, she and I share lots of laughs about it. Sometimes she will text me and say, he says stuff just like you do. That's hilarious. On social media, you loser. And I, and I always <laughs> laugh and I say, I don't think it's him. You know, I really don't. Right. Uh, we don't look anything alike. And she's like, doesn't matter. I can tell. You Personality know. So wise. we have a good time with it. And uh it just, I was more interested in reaching out and finding my birth mom. I'm speaking with Biff Naked. Uh, I Biffic- if you want the extended stories of anything you hear today, <laughs> I Bificus, uh, you can you can pick it up. It's a couple of years old now, but you're yes, it is. You are uh, it's so busy these days. We'll talk about all that. I just want to fill in some of the blanks here a little bit. Um, you were a ballet dancer, and you had aspirations of being a doctor. Yes, I did. Sad. Yeah, sad. But that all changed when you first heard Judas Priest. Oh, yes. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Green Man Alishi. (laughs) You know, I think Unleashed in the East was the first record I ever had. And um, it it really did change my life. I loved it. I could mimic. We would lip sync it in the mirror. and, uh, And that was it. And then, you know, a couple years later, after learning about Judas Priest, I heard thrash, you mm. know, like DRI and, and bands like Metallica. And that just led into just a lifelong joy that I feel from this type of rambunctious music. Your parents couldn't have been thrilled about oh, that. Oh, my goodness. They had uh, Nat King Cole records and Ravi Shankar <laughs> playing in my house. So, yeah, it was uh, a learning curve. Yeah, a learning curve for them for sure. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And and we've just got about a minute left in the segment, but what was it about it? You said like it's rambunctious, absolutely. But what was it that spoke to you? You know, it was just uh, I could uh, understand the lyrics. I just thought it was, you know, it was something that just resonated with me at right. that age. And prior to that, I had maybe listened to a bit of, uh, I don't know, Tony Orlando and yeah, Don. Elton John, maybe, something yeah, like that. Yeah, I hadn't really heard any music that was uh, particularly artistic or creative or different. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it really grabbed me. Well, I often think that every generation has the thing that speaks to them, you know? And so for my dad, it was Frank Sinatra and, yes. and Louis Armstrong. For my brother, it was Jimi Hendrix. He's a little older than me. Right. I'm older than you. For me, it was Elvis Costello when I first right. heard My Aim is True. Yeah. And then there's, you know, for you, you find this music that kind of defines you a little bit. You know, it's, oh, it's the thing. And I will tell you, without a word of a lie, I listen to part if not the whole thing, but usually just part of My Aim is True, probably once a week and have for the entire, you know, last 40 years. Yes. (laughs) Because that music really speaks to me. Uh, I'm in conversation with Biff Naked. Uh, You'll be able to see you speak at any number of events coming up soon. The book Ibificus is available everywhere that you buy fine books. Uh, When we come back, we're going to talk about Winnipeg as a hotbed of hardcore punk and thrash music and how you kind of jumped into that scene. Stay with us.
Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. In studio, I'm thrilled to have Biff Naked. I met you. You came on my television show, Pop yes, Life. Yes, I did. And I was so delighted to meet you. Aww. And, and it was so fun to see uh, the reaction of everybody when you came on set. Because everyone was a pretty jaded bunch, right? Like, That's oh, funny. Look, it's just, and you came on and, and everyone, and you remember how many photos you took with people that day. Everyone wanted their picture with you and stuff. You really uh, mean a lot to a lot of people. Oh, that's very nice of you to say. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I think that I always say I'm a million years old. I've been doing it for so long. <laughs> I, I just think that I've been just really fortunate to be able to have had a career that it keeps lasting. And also, a lot of people that I know remember me from much music. Right. And, and when videos were something... You know that people would look to watching. Yep, and they and, played in bars, and they play. You could see yeah, them very easily. Yeah, it was a yeah. different time. So I, I think that that I, I feel lucky to have been able to survive that. Well, you're still very visual, and I enjoy. Like, we're on radio right now, so you can't see how you're dressed. But I love that you're wearing a Snoopy T-shirt and a jacket with a big Slayer patch oh, on the funny. back. And that's and I awesome. I was going to wear a different shirt today. <laughs> I actually had to decide. I was going to wear my shirt that was in sight, which is harm reduction. Right. Uh, and then I thought, you know, do I really, you know, do I want to do that? And then like, you know, stir up thing because I knew I was coming on the round table. I was like, well, I should dress like a, a lady. And... Well, I, but see, what I think though is that having read about you and getting to know you a little bit is it really shows both sides of your personality because there there is the 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 Slayer side to your personality, absolutely. But then there's the there's Snoopy side as well, which I oh, think absolutely. is sweet and lovely. I'm a Gemini. And, yeah. yeah, me too. Me <laughs> yeah, too. Yeah, so. that's exactly what it is. <laughs> So we were talking, we've, we've sort of gotten up to the point where you have discovered some extreme music yes. that your parents certainly would not have approved of. That's right. Uh, now, you were living in Winnipeg, or living in an, in Manitoba, in yes. Dauphine. And, but Winnipeg was, for some reason, uh, this, this hotbed of, of hardcore punk. Why do you think oh, that yes, is? Oh, yes, it was. I think that a lot of prairie uh, places are like that, you know, um, when it comes to winter and what there is to do for kids, right. I think that we just found found our way into uh, into those freezing cold rehearsal halls <laughs> uh, where all the cool kids hung out, yep. and there was uh, it was a stop across Canada. You know, it was a destination mm -hmm. for a lot of these bands that were cutting their teeth touring and, in Canada. And, and, and driving in a van from oh, yes. city to city to city. That's right. right. Yeah. yeah. Winnipeg is right in the middle. And a lot of bands that would tour in the U.S. can come up from Minneapolis. Yeah. And it was great. It was a, a great coming of age. Um, it, it's a really neat city, and it still is. Uh, a real arts-based city, a very diverse, multicultural population. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, it lends itself to music. Well, I think that there's something to be said uh, for places that feel a little isolated. And I, I, I say that I grew up in Nova Scotia. Mm -hmm. And years ago, Harper's or somebody did an article on the coolest kids in North America. Right. And they were from Lunenburg, Nova Scotia. Oh, because, I'm not because they were not exposed to the stuff. That, yeah. that, you know, there was no uh, great record store on the on every corner like there there was in Toronto or Vancouver. There, you know, in Toronto, uh, Vancouver would have had Zulu records. Yes, you could go still get do. Yeah, yeah, and could get some really wicked stuff. That's right. You couldn't find it, so you had to seek it out and you had to make your own scene. That's right. And maybe that's what it was in Winnipeg too. You know, you've got oh, time, and and it creates this thing. This oh creates yeah, a scene. it was. And with punk music, I mean, it was like there were so many good bands. That came out of out of Winnipeg, you know, from 
personality crisis to the unwanted. Mm-hmm. To I mean, it was just, it was nuts. Now, did you, when you started playing in, in bands like Gorilla Gorilla and Chrome Dog and things like that, did you think of it as a career or did you think, ah, this is just going to be like a hoot for a while and then I'll become a doctor? Uh, absolutely. You nailed it. That's really <laughs> what happened. I was in university anyway. And although I was in theater, um, you know, I really thought that I could be Eddie Murphy. Yeah. You know, for a long time in my life. <laughs> I thought, well, that that makes sense. You know, that's what I'm going to do, just go into acting. And uh, being in a band was really great musical theater for me. I didn't train as a singer, believe me. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't my aspiration ever. So I could kind of take it or leave it. And time just went on and on and on. And another tour came and these little milestones kept happening. And I still thought, well, you know, I'll give it another year. And then I'm going to definitely go back to school. And plus, I always had my parents saying, when are you going to go back to school? I mean, I did The Tonight Show and told my dad, watch The Tonight Show, called him right after we were on with Jay Leno. I got to sit on the couch, Oscar de la Hoya. I mean, the whole thing. (laughs) It was amazing. And my dad was like, people think you're on drugs, kid. You talk too fast. So just let me know when you want to go back to school. It was like, you know, and and funny because he always told me he's a faculty member at the University of Toronto, even though he was uh, in uh, Regina and and in Winnipeg. And he's like, you let me know. I'll I'll put you through school. And I was like, well, I don't know. I'm on the Tonight Show. Right. (laughs) And he just, you know, he was not impressed. And uh, it took me until uh, my book for my dad to, yeah, I mean, you could give him a gold record or anything, you know, put a plaque in his name. But it was the book that really did it. Well, I think there's something generational about that, too. Uh, yeah. You know, there's something tangible about the book. You know, there's something he can hold. Yes. And he understands the book. That's right. I understand what a book is, and it's about my daughter's life. Um, my dad could never figure out what it, how I made a living. He would <laughs> right. see me on television, <laughs> but, right. it, but he'd be like, you were only on for four minutes, son. Uh, how right. can you be making a living doing that, you know? Right. And, and it wasn't until I started writing books that he could hold them in his hand. He goes, oh, I get this. Sort of maybe the effort that goes into this, yeah. yeah. So it's a generational thing, yes. you know. Your dad probably worked nine to five, you know, yeah. worked those hours, exactly. and I didn't understand an uh, you know an alternate kind of lifestyle. And he never understood a word I said in the song <laughs> ever. He always said, just sat there going, "I don't know what you're saying," <laughs> and he thought it was funny. When did you go from Beth to Biff? Well, Biff was a nickname I got in high school. Yeah, uh, Mark Bergen's cousin was from. Uh, <laughs> England, and he couldn't say my name. He kept calling me Beth. <laughs> Literally, that's what happened. And around the same time, I think Back to the Future came out. Right. And so there was a Biff guy yep. on there, and it just kind of stuck. And Biff Naked came as a nickname uh, when Gorilla Gorilla had replaced their male singer with me. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, I think about some of the stuff we used to wear when we were young. It makes me hold my sinuses. I just, <laughs> you know, my friend, my best friend and I used to skateboard because all the guys we liked were skateboarders and right. we used to call ourselves the skate whores <laughs> you know we loved it we thought it was funny we would wear like our underwear you know lingerie right. with like converse chucks and like oh my gosh so anyway the gorilla gorilla made a poster that said come see biff naked uh, i see to, to try and you know yeah. Seduce people to come to the show with a chick singer. Yeah, and then it stuck. It just stuck. When we come back, we continue the conversation with Biff Naked. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. In studio, uh, we have Biff Naked. Listen, 
I, I said earlier, and I, I, I'll say it again, I'm tickled to have you in here. Thank you. I'm tickled to be yeah, here. I, I have, I have uh, been a fan for a long time. And then I started to, I knew the videos and I knew the music and stuff. Right. And then I started to get to know about you. Uh-huh. And it's a fascinating story. Oh, It's good. a fascinating story. And, and we're telling some of the story uh, here today. Uh, one of the things that I think is so interesting, so we've talked about uh, the the early kind of punk bands that you were in, but there weren't a lot of women in those. There were bands like you know in England there were the Slits and things like mm-hmm. that, but there weren't that many female singers in punk bands, unless I just missed missed that. Well, I mean, there was probably you know in Poly like these, Styrene, uh, maybe. you know yeah. obscure hardcore bands, but you know as far as being personable, uh, non threatening, right, uh, or alluring. I mean, let's face it, you know. My friends and I, we we loved Pamela Anderson. You know, these were the, and you know, we learned to do makeup from drag queens. Right. You know, that was really the generation we grew up in. Betty Page was our hero, you know. So it was something that was alluring, accessible, approachable, friendly, giggly, you know, not just, the, you know, these girls that will, you know, bash your head in. Yeah, yeah. So I think that that was different, and, and I think... When I started, at least in Canada, I couldn't get a record deal. And know. why do you think that was? Uh, well, probably a variety of reasons. Yeah. But uh, I remember my manager when uh, it was about 1993 or four. Uh, we made a solo record, and then the company that we made it with kind of folded immediately, right. and we're doing other things. And you know, the distributor was A and M, and they were like, "Yeah, no." We were, you're never going to get this tattooed girl on the radio. <laughs> and that's what they told my manager. Wow. Uh, and he was just like, wow, you're on, you know, basically is that how he took it. And we formed our own company because we, we had to. I just couldn't get a record And deal. way ahead of the curve, though, because now who that's knew? what everybody yeah, does, right? Who knew? Yeah. yeah. And, and do you think that served you well? Yes, I do. For, yeah. Yeah, I do, you know, because uh, at the same time we controlled – all of the creative, we controlled all the masters. And at the time, um, you know, it was a different era. Now there's no revenue source, really, in music at all. Except um, selling T-shirts at live shows, If right? you're lucky, but people still won't pay over 25 bucks for a T-shirt half right. the time. So, you, you know, it's, it, it's really hit and miss, depending yeah. on where you are. Um, it's really interesting. And I think that someone like myself, who started out in a van... And uh, and loved it, loved the thrill of trying to find a hot dog in the middle of the night, you know, with the band or whatever it is. We have so many different stories and adventures. And ultimately, you know, it's almost like you're on a hockey team. You do it for the love of the game. Yeah. And uh, and that is the same way I am today. Uh, I'm just lucky that I had a manager all this time who, you know, was able to be an adult yeah. uh, when I was just an artist. Well, we were talking earlier, and you're about to go back on tour. Yes. And I said, man, I don't know. It's, it just sounds exhausting to me. But you still love it. I do love on the it. Road it's since sad. You were it is exhausting. I'm like exhausted that. all the time. <laughs> I have stress fractures in both of my feet that I've had for a year. Uh, I just did two uh, shows in Vancouver, broke my foot, still had to do the other show. <laughs> you know, I had talked to this guy in a, a record store. He's like, yeah, I'm in a boot. And I'm like, why? Oh, I have a stress fracture. I'm like, what? I go, you get a boot for that? I go, are you kidding me? I keep breaking my feet all the time. But that's just all we know. Yeah. You know, that's all we know. And I, I love playing shows. And I can't, ha- I can't attend a show 
uh, with a band like Suicidal Tendencies was playing and Guar. I can't attend a show without wanting to work stage for the band. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, I forget how old I am. <laughs> I say, oh, I'll work stage for you and throw the stage divers off. Well, you're not allowed to access the stage. There's no stage diver anymore. Right. You know, that, that doesn't really happen anymore. It's just, uh, but I just love it. Yeah. I'm speaking with Biff Naked. Uh, you want to find out more about her? Listen to the records. Thank for you. one thing, yes. and check out I Bificus, the book. You do lots of speaking. There's going to be a tour. We'll give you all those details. Uh, one of the things that uh, is interesting in your story is how things changed for you after you were diagnosed with cancer. Yes. And, and your attitudes uh, about cancer um, are really interesting. You know, when someone asked you, do you have fear of the cancer returning, which is something that a lot of people fear. I've, I've gone through it. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking to other people that have had cancer and they would say things like, you always kind of feel like there's a sort of Damocles hanging over your head, you know, that, that, that it might one day come back. Oh, and you're you, waiting you, for the other shoe to drop. But you say in this, in the interview that I read with you, it says, uh, the question was, how do you deal with the fear of cancer returning? And you said, well, I don't have any. No. You know, I've never had any. And uh, I was one of those punk rock kids that thought, dude, I'm going to croak by the time I'm 30. That's right. Yeah. I can't believe I'm alive. <laughs> I can't believe I'm alive. And people say, what if your breast cancer comes back? And I always say, are you kidding? There's nothing more punk rock to me than to have, you know, the hammers cut right off your body <laughs> and then, like, run around on stage with no shirt on. Right. You know, like you're Billy Hopeless from the Black Halos. You know, like, why not? Like, I don't know. I just, uh, it's not in my nature in a way. And I don't, you know, I've I've kind of tried to reason it and say, is that a coping technique? Like, am I just like, you know, mucking around with myself? Yeah, just like I'm too, uh, yeah. I don't don't think so. I just think that everything is gravy. You know, I could have died happy uh, when I was 23 years old and got a record deal. I could have died happy being on The Tonight Show, um, being in Europe on a tour bus, anything. Yeah. Being married once, twice, three times, <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> but I could have, you know, all these things. I just think, wow, I can't believe this is amazing. Yeah. This is great. And I think that all the time, you know, and I think it every single day. Uh, I drive my husband crazy uh, because every time we get home in, in the car, I can't believe we made it home safely. You know, here, by the way, Toronto is very lawless. You don't want yeah. me to become a cop in this place. I will get every one of you illegal people. Oh, my God. I don't mean like yeah. illegal drivers. Because yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's lawless, you know. But every day really is uh, is actually a miracle that we can still walk and talk and, and get through the day. So, I don't know. Cancer is not... Cancer, heart attack, I don't know. You know, it changes things. It changes, it it certainly changed my perspective on everything. Um, Yes. You know, I I had been with uh, the same woman for years. I mean, I I think, uh, I'm trying to think now, probably 14 years or something by the time Mm. uh, I had cancer. No, about 10 years, I think. And then we went through the the whole cancer thing uh, and we've been together for 17 years. But after the the cancer, I thought, you know, like, why am I not married to this person? And and I'll tell you why, because the worst things got with me and it did get pretty dark there for a while. The worst things got from with me, the stronger things got with us because you realize that it's kind of an all or nothing thing. Oh, yeah. And, and, And it changed everything for me. 
Interesting. And, and, it, and, and I think it does. Yes, it does. it does. And that's why people always, uh, when I meet people, they always say it was a blessing. Mm. And when I volunteer with some of these women with breast cancer, they're like, there's so many, it was such a gift. And people find that absurd mm-hmm. who've never been through a crisis in their life or in their family. They don't understand how anything can be a blessing. But it is. It does give you per- perspective. I mean, in a hurry. Yeah. And, uh, and it's always amazing. And it always stays with you. It's a, I mean, you know, experience teaches us everything. And when you talk about every day is a gift and, and the blessing and stuff, I, I follow you on Twitter. Oh. And, and in uh. the morning, namaste. Oh, yeah. And then, and I, then, that, and then you, you do, you testify. It. You testify every morning yeah, on, every on Twitter. Day. Yeah. yeah, I like it. I mean, it, it's a bit of a habit. Uh, I used to take a day off a week. <laughs> right. I did. And then somehow I stopped. I don't know how. <laughs> and uh, my husband goes, when are you going to like take another day off? I don't know. You know what? I don't know. I just do what I feel. And, and I think the key with social media is just, yeah, you know, what What do you really want to put out there in the mm-hmm. world? You know, there's a lot of people who whine. And, you know, I, I get in trouble for saying that because people really feel entitled to whine. Mm-hmm. And I say, great. You know, if that's how you self-identify, just, you know, own it. If yep. you want to be a whiner, go ahead and whine. But for me, I just think that you have to, no matter what is going on in the world or in your life, you start every day, you know, feeling positive, even if it's forced, uh, you're going to be able to get that feeling to carry you through the day. I'm speaking with Biff Naked. When we come back, we're going to talk, we've covered, we've covered your life. <laughs> big chunks of it so anyway. Far. When when we when we come back, uh, we'll talk about what you're doing right this minute. You're about to go on tour. I want to talk to you about songwriting. There's still loads to go. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krauss. Biff Naked is in the studio with me. I Biffacus is the is the book. You're about to go on tour. Tell me about the tour. Well, uh, doing a national tour of Canada is something that I've been doing since 1989. Yep. We used to do probably four times a year. That's and then, a lot of ground to cover. Then we started throwing in uh, <laughs> Europe and the U.S. Um, and again, you know, being diagnosed with breast cancer, it was the first vacation I ever, ever had, ever, ever in my life. And I was like, this is great. Uh, so a- after that, we did, uh, I think 2009, I did a rock tour and, uh, and I didn't like it. Right. I didn't like it at all. It didn't feel good. Um, suddenly people had smartphones at the concert and right. that had changed. Yeah. So when you're year. standing in the audience, when you're on stage, right. all you see is people That's holding their phones up to you. And yeah. I felt really self-conscious. You know, my hair was just growing back and my voice had changed. Right. And that could have been a combination of, you know, my lymphatic system or my glands or who knows what. But I started doing acoustic shows. I liked it better. It was in soft seaters. That was great. And then... I finally finished the book. The book came out in 2000, uh, 2016. And we did two national tours of Canada that we kind of wrapped a book tour around an acoustic show. And it was right. great. Uh, I loved it. And it was uh, it's probably still my favorite thing to do. It winds up being a three-hour show. Yeah. But it's so much fun. I just love it. And so this is the first rock tour I've done in a number of years. So we're really excited about it. And you take care of everything. I mean, we were talking again earlier before we turned the microphones on, and you don't just show up and sing. I'm the tour manager. You're the tour manager. You do it all. I call it the tour mom. (laughs) Yeah. And I love it. That's, I mean, it's, you know, it's just a habit. I don't know. Um, 
Everybody needs different things. And so that's all it is. I think sometimes I think, oh, I should have my own tour management company or, oh, I should go into rock management. Right. You know, by this time, maybe 10 years from now, I'll be a rock manager. Let me tell you, there's probably no money in it. I can, <laughs> I can assure you, you know. But um, I, I just love it. I love doing all the jobs. Well, being on the road, though, I think is so important for, and I, I remember uh, that, when I was growing up in Nova Scotia, the bands that came down there, I ended up forming lifelong bonds with, oh, you yes. know, and like Teenage Head, you could see Teenage Head because right. they relentlessly toured the country. That's right. And it meant so much to me to be able to go see these people that, whose records I could buy, or now I guess whose music you can download or yeah. something, whatever it is, yeah, but it sure. meant a great deal to me. And Especially it, in the Maritimes, because yeah. it's expensive for a band to get there. Yeah. So not all, not all the tourists come there, so yeah. it must have been really special. It was. It yeah. really was. It really it, it meant a great deal. So, uh, poets and literary pieces inspire you, oh, and I yeah. noticed you have when uh, when we were talking earlier, you had a fancy little book with you. You read a lot, a lot. Yeah, I love it. So, I collect Irving Layton. Right. Yeah, that's right. The former poet yeah, laureate. Who is, you know, and in this day and age, in this day and age of Me Too, you know, a lot of the stuff that he 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 wouldn't be maybe popular writing that nope. stuff today. Uh, but when I was a young girl uh, coming of age, reading his words and a nice nin and, and these forbidden type of writing, I mean, it just really resonated with me. I loved it. And um, and now I just, I'm, I love reading. I used to read medical textbooks because it was uh, <laughs> something that I could turn, literally turn my brain off right. and calm me down. Uh, and I did that this week for the first time in a long time. I was reading this entomology book on these spiders, like just the most random. And like a half an hour in, I was like, why am I doing this? Like, I have no interest. I don't like spiders, but it was fascinating. And, uh, and I think that reading really is a lost um, calming technique for people. People used to be able to really get lost in a book. And uh, I hope that that, you know, that, that people can listen to this somehow and go go pick up a book. Well, I think that people still are picking up books. I mean, yes. you know, there was a time every, for the last three or four of my books, I always thought, oh, this is the last one that's, that's going right. to be a physical book. That's you know, right. the, the next one will only uh, exist digitally. That's and right. then that hasn't happened. That hasn't happened. Yeah. Apparently, we have Harry Potter to thank for some of that because a whole yeah. generation of kids grew up loving holding a book. Yes. You know? Yes. Uh, but people still love the book. I do think that there's something just great in that analog feel yes, I think of, so too. Of, of holding a book. Mm -hmm. So when you wrote your book, speaking of analog, <laughs> you didn't use a computer. You didn't know how. It, yeah, you didn't know how, so you, you wrote it all in, in longhand. Yeah. And uh, it was 270,000 words. To put it in perspective, your average book is probably between seventy and 100,000 words. A longer mm -hmm. book might be upwards of 100,000. So you right. had, this This would have been like an encyclopedia almost. Well, and it's, you know, and we only discovered that once we had to punch it into the computer. Right. And uh, it was it was something else. I didn't... You know, I, I, working with Jim was an amazing experience He's for me. He's your editor. I learned yeah. so much um, just about what is <laughs> libel. Yeah. <laughs> that was a big part of it. And, uh, and, and what's necessary yeah. to tell a story. You know, what are the things that is necessary? Um, I loved it, you know, and everyone has another book in them. And also, you know, writing a memoir is different than mm -hmm. writing a book book. Yep. You know, like writing short stories, I think, for anybody – 
anybody can write a short story. And I think that really is the truth. And, you know, whether you're good at it or not is different. Right. But start with a short story. Write a couple of short stories. Then, you know, string them together. String your string your stories together and, and make them cohesive. I love it. And I love books that are nonfiction. Yeah, me too. Is my favorite type of book. Well, one of the first lessons that I learned uh, in radio uh, many, many years ago, I was a DJ, mm. my first job, and I thought I was so good at it. I had- You are. Well, well, this is a much different thing. So I had, I was 16, I was 16 or 17 Amazing. years old uh, in Nova Scotia, and I was on this radio station, and uh, I'd memorized all the details of all my favorite bands and the records I would play, and I knew when the Rolling Stones in 1969, wow. yeah. and I was throwing out all that stuff. And then my program director brought me in and said, you know what, yeah, that's, that's okay, that's good, except that, you know, we want to hear about you because, and this is the lesson that I learned, people want to hear about people. Interesting. And that's, that yeah. has stayed with me forever. And, and it those words influence this show that I do every week when we just talk yeah. to people about mm-hmm. their lives, uh, it, my television show, everything. It's always about the people. Interesting. Yeah. Very good. So um, you mentioned Irving Layton, all yes. that sort of thing. How... What is your process then of writing? So you've ingested all this. You've read Nisnin, all that stuff. You've read it all. It's mm-hmm. all bouncing around in there. What's your process in terms of writing a song? Oh, songwriting is so different is from yeah. anything else um, because songwriting is really a deliberation, honestly. Uh, when I started out, it was just all the the books I have, like uh, notebooks. I have probably 2,000 notebooks. <laughs> half of them are half Filled. Right. And then I buy another book or get a scribbler. I used to start with Hillroy yep. uh, lined scribblers. I have a million of them. <laughs> I kept every one of them. Why I keep these things, I don't know. It's I, the archive. I cart them yeah. around. <laughs> um, and some of them are great uh, one liners that I'll weave a song around. Um, and it's poetry. Lyric writing yeah. really is poetry. Sometimes it's couplets, you know, which is the, the rapper's delight, you know, it's couplets. Um, and I love it. It was a great songwriting is a great vehicle for my writing. And in songwriting, I get to be vague about events. I get to be vague about memories, whether they're painful, uh, songs about longing, anything like that. I can really be vague about it, uh, or make it up or really be, you know, just far fetched anything, you know, the, uh, it's limitless, you know, it it really is. And it's a great medium to work in. And do you write a song a week? Do you only write when you've got a record coming out? Do you write, how does it work for you in terms of of that? I write something every single day. I don't write songs, but I write Mm -hmm. something every single day. And Mm -hmm. if I don't, I feel like part of my day is missing. Interesting. I do sometimes, I go through phases. I think a lot of people do. I go through that with painting. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll be painting a lot for a month and then I'll literally switch over and and write poems or... uh, observations is what I call it, which is, you know, just stream of consciousness writing, uh, wherever you are, something strikes you or inspires you. And when it comes to songwriting, I'll either pick something that I've already written and write around it, or I'll write something specific. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the music comes first, and sometimes the words come first. It's never the same. But uh, it's pretty task-oriented. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. You describe yourself as an accidental vegan. Yes. After years of searching for hot dogs in the middle of the night while you're on the road. Yes, exactly. How did did this happen? 
Oh, well, I, my first husband was a vegetarian. Right. And uh, that was uh, something that I can always credit him for. Uh, he taught me a lot about eating. He taught me about uh, Middle Eastern food, which is my favorite type of food after Indian. Um, I don't know. It just was something that agreed with me. Yeah. Eating vegetarian agreed with me. And I never ate cheese because it made me constipated, plain and simple. Yep. It's all about poop, really. <laughs> uh, plain and simple. So I never ate cheese. So I didn't really understand the, you know, the cheese thing. And that, that was nothing I had to give up as a vegetarian. And then someone pointed out, oh, don't you eat eggs? No. You don't eat meat? No. I just couldn't afford it. Right. Um, you don't eat cheese? No. We were a vegan. Oh. And literally, that yeah. was it. Yeah. That was my epiphany. And then after that, you know, meeting enough kids in other bands that were straight edge, um, you know, part of their abstinence from alcohol and smoking was also being a vegan. And so I learned a lot about it from that. Uh, it wasn't, you know, the, I have a friend who became a vegan at 10 years old when she understood that right. the cute cow was what mommy was making for dinner. And she was like, that's it. I'm not eating that. That never happened for me. It was just accidental, you know. And then as I kind of uh, evolved, I guess you could say, you know, my my understanding and awareness just deepened. My guest in studio has been Biff Naked. What a pleasure. What a treat. Uh, You're we very could do nice. like so three, three or four hours of this, I think. Uh, we have to leave it here, though. But thanks so much, Biff, for coming in. Thank you for asking me. And, uh, you know, we'll come see you on the the 40-date tour that you're about to embark on. Very pick good. up by Bificus, pick up the music, and uh, and and uh, you just enjoy having Biff in your day. Follow her on Twitter. Follow Biff Naked on Twitter. It's worth it. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks to Andre on the board. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll see you again next week.